Dr. Keisha Ewers is an integrative medicine expert, doctor of sexology, family practice ARNP, certified trauma-informed therapist, a certified death doula, is board certified in functional medicine and Ayurvedic medicine, and is the founder and medical director of the Academy for Integrative Medicine Health Coach Certification Program. She's also the best-selling author of Solving the Autoimmune Puzzle, The Women's Guide to Reclaiming Emotional Freedom and Vibrant Health, The Quick and Easy Autoimmune Paleo Cookbook, Anti-Inflammatory Recipes with Seven Ingredients or Less for Busy People, and Your Libido Story, a workbook for women who want to find, fix, and free their sexual desire. Welcome, Dr. Yuris. I'm so excited to have you on the summit today. Oh, you can call me Keisha, and I'm so excited to be here. Oh, well, you are just a wealth of knowledge, and I know that you have so much that you can share about this topic. But before you know, we dive in, I know you have a personal story that probably resonates with a lot of our viewers. Can you share a little bit about your personal journey and your struggles with autoimmune illness? Yes, you know, you probably have one too. I think that 99.9% of people in our world actually have a story that brings us to this way of being, right? So for me, that's also true. I always say when I was a baby nurse, when I was 19, I went straight into like this high intensity medicine of intensive care unit and life flight and things like that. And, and, you know, loved my high adrenaline junkie life. And then when I was I was raising four kids and I was training for marathons and running them. And then when I was 30, at some point, one day I woke up and this is how my patients always describe it too. All of a sudden I got sick, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Of course it was not all of a sudden, but you know, it was sort of like someone had unplugged me from the wall and I, I had 10 pounds of puffiness overnight that was all over my body. My joints were red and inflamed. I was exhausted, just completely annihilated got in to see my doctor and I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. And in the process of the history taking, when she was looking through my lab work and everything, you know, she said, do you have any family history of autoimmune disease? And I said, yeah, I think my grandfather had RA and was wheelchair bound for, you know, with it. And she said, well, it looks like you have drawn the short end of the genetic lotto, my dear, you know, close the book, put it on the shelf. Here are two prescriptions. One's for nethotrexate and one is for a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug. And when I said, oh, okay, (laughs) you know, like, is there anything else I can do? I'm really disciplined. I make my own food. You know, I exercise regularly. I'll do whatever. And she said, no, you know, none of that has anything to do with this. It's genetic. And so, unfortunately, people are still being told this. I'm 54 today, and the same exact regimen is being handed out across America with that same messaging, right? And, you know, what really stood out to me was when you get worse, not if, come back and we will up your meds and probably change the class of meds that you'll be on. And I just remember driving home thinking, there has to be a different way than this, you know, and this is my model of medicine. I didn't even know another one existed. So I went into PubMed and I started looking around for other ways. And I came across this uh, research article that looked at yoga and autoimmune disease. So the next morning I was in my first yoga class and this yoga teacher actually, and then you have to remember like in those days, there wasn't a yoga studio on every corner besides Starbucks, right? <laughs> I, I remember calling up my running partners going, I'm going to go to a yoga class tomorrow. I don't even know if I know how to touch my own toes, you know, because my legs were so tight from running. And I've never hung out with people that chant before. I'm nervous. I was so conservative. 
so conservative. I wouldn't have known an herb if it had bitten me in the butt. So, <laughs> Look at you now, right? This yoga teacher actually mentioned this word that intrigued me enough. He said Ayurveda and said enough that I went back home and went on to my dial-up modem computer once again and looked up Ayurvedic medicine. And, you know, it was kind of like the clouds parted and the angels sang because it explained so many cases that I'd seen over the past decade that we called idiopathic heart disease and idiopathic this and idiopathic that, which I used to say we're idiots and we don't know (laughs) is what idiopathic means, right? Mm -hmm. And I really started understanding, oh, this idea that you can match a drug with a symptom and expect to have standardized medicine, you know, assumes we're standardized people. And Ayurveda just kind of opened this different way of thinking to me that was so revolutionary. And I know it sounds kind of silly, but it was, we're all different, you know, and that actually we're not just our physical structure. And that that's why, you know, like when you see somebody have a paradoxical effect to a medication, it's because we're not all the same. And so uh, it really made a ton of sense to me. And as I delved further and really started studying Ayurveda and feeding and watering and taking care of myself the way that my particular metabolic and dosha type is, I started seeing changes. And the other thing Ayurveda, as I went further into it, said is that autoimmune disease is undigested anger. And I remember when I read that kind of going, I'm not an angry person. (laughs) Because I was this consummate people pleaser. I had to have everybody like me and I had to make sure that I was caregiving everybody, which is exactly true. What I've come up with in my own paradigm now is that everybody with autoimmune disease has three P's. One is they're people pleasers. Another one is they're perfectionists and have some degree of that. And another one is that they have more pitta in them, which is in Ayurvedic medicine, more fire, which means They're more judgmental, usually toward themselves and hold on to hurt and and anger. And so, you know, these three P's were definitely present in me. And so I thought, okay, you know, I need to go after this. And so I, I, I was, I had learned how to meditate and I was meditating one day and this word autoimmune was dancing in front of me. And I started really looking at it and I thought autoimmune that means I'm killing myself and there's nothing outside of me to blame, you know, cause we're always looking for the hidden infection. We're always looking for, you know, like there's always something outside. And I thought, you know what, this is actually committing suicide in a societally acceptable manner. When's the first time I wanted to die. And that became this very pivotal life-changing question for me because I didn't want to die, you know, and, and I had a very happy life. And I thought, somewhere in here, my cells got that messaging and are just following through. That's what I got intuitively. So I started going backwards in my meditation to when's the first time I wanted to die. And I found this 10 year old little girl version of myself who was being sexually abused by the vice principal of my elementary school. And I went, you know, I just started looking at her and I thought she wanted to die. You know, like she didn't understand what was going on. She couldn't, she didn't know words to use to tell people, you know, and, and she really wanted out. And so we now know from a large cohort study called the adverse childhood experiences study that 
It takes anywhere from 10 to 30 years to really develop a full-blown autoimmune disease. Mine was 20 years, like I had a turkey timer in me that just went, ping, you're done, right? (laughs) You now have this beautiful disease that's going to wake you up and start getting this going. And so that was really, I started going after that trauma and really healing that and rewiring my brain and reframing my story and my beliefs and, and my activities in life and how I was with everything. And within six months, my RA was gone and I never took any meds. So, you know, this was really powerful. And I thought, okay, so I went back to school and I started doing, you know, what I do today because I was doing a lot with end of life. And I thought that kind of medicine in our culture is really good. Hospice is fantastic. And I thought this idea that you really address all of these areas of life only happens when you have a terminal illness in our culture. (laughs) (laughs) So I went back to school to start putting it on the front end. And that's what I do now. So such an incredible like road shift, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. No, thank you for sharing that powerful story. And I know um, you have so much to offer us. And and we have in our framework, we look at the physical levels, the energetic, mental, intuitive, and spiritual levels of our health. And you really touched on already this kind of emotional trauma that you had as um, a young child. And can you just share a little bit more? I, I know you touched on it, but I think this could ring true or resonate with maybe someone out there who's listening, how does our past trauma really affect us on a physical level and a little bit more about the ACE study? Yes, absolutely. So this framework you just mentioned is actually a 10,000 year old framework that comes from Ayurveda, right? And and it's that we have these five layers. And so when we're traumatized, when we're children, I, I did a, a hurt, it's called the hurt study, healing unresolved trauma. I did a study when I was in my doctoral program. And what I was looking at was the female sexual desire. Because I was having all these patients come into my office asking for bioidentical hormones. But when I started asking them really easy questions, like, why do you think you need hormones? And then, sure, we'll do the testing, but like, what's happening for you? And then they would say, I have no libido. And then I would follow that up with, so when's the last time you had a libido you were satisfied with? There would be tears, like never, you know, or, or five years ago, my spouse had an affair and I've forgiven him, but I don't want to have sex with him, right? And I would say you know, progesterone and estrogen aren't going to fix those things, you know? And so I went into the medical literature and I couldn't find anything that actually supported what I was seeing anecdotally in my, in my space. And so I I went back to school to do the study. And what I found is that everybody has trauma. Everybody has trauma. There's no one person in the world that doesn't have trauma. And so if we start with that assumption being true, we know that there are a couple different kinds of trauma. One is capital T trauma, you could say, which is sexual abuse, domestic violence, you know, verbal psychological abuse, neglect of all kinds. But then there's also any experience of rejection, which is, you could say, a lowercase t trauma, perhaps, or chronic, you know, what we're finding in MRI scans today is that people that report chronic overwhelm or stress actually have the same brain changes, which is shrinkage in the prefrontal cortex as somebody with PTSD. So lowercase T trauma and capital T trauma are having the same impact on the body. Okay. So you can't say, well, I wasn't sexually abused. So therefore, you know, it's actually everybody has trauma. And when you think about it in that way and you say, okay, in tribal days, if you were rejected from the tribe and you were put on the outside of the firelight circle, the saber-toothed tiger could eat you, right? We are wired to experience as a, a big trauma. 
and who in childhood has not been rejected, you know? And so at some point, and so when you, when you think about that, like one day you have three girlfriends on the playground, the next day they're, you know, they've rejected you some, for some reason you can't understand it and it's traumatizing. So there are all kinds of those kinds of experiences. And so what I found in my study after I started mapping brains and looking at this is that you have this initial experience with an undeveloped prefrontal cortex. You know, your brain's not fully that adult or executive function about how you control your impulses, what you're going to put on your fork, what you're going to drink, you know, how you spend your money, who you hang out with. That part of your brain is not fully developed until you're 26 years old. So before 26, you have this initial experience of anxiety or hurt or betrayal or rejection, you know, some kind of trauma that you can't understand because it's a fresh experience. And if you don't have by your side at all times, a well-attuned, developed caregiver that can help guide you through that, and we don't all the time, Mm -hmm. then you're going to make up a meaning about it. And whatever that meaning is, you will carry into adulthood until after your brain is fully developed, you go back and reinvestigate it. So you have a meaning that you make up, and then you have a belief that's created from that. And from that, you create an adaptive behavior. So I'll use myself as an example. I'm 10 years old. The intercom goes off in the corner of the classroom, as it does, you know, for the Pledge of Allegiance every morning, and sometimes to call me to the principal's office. And I don't know when that's going to happen, right? And so I go into panic every time it crackles to life, like Pavlov's dog. So instantly my nervous system goes off, my, my you know, fists clench, and I go into a fight or flight response. That then, from the meaning that I get, this vice principal was telling me it was because I was a bad kid, white trash, and so, you know, this is happening because of that. So the meaning I make is I actually have to be perfect to even survive. Okay, so I'm so perfect. And then the belief that I create is, you know, okay, I have to be, I have to be perfect. And the behavior that goes with that is going to be perfectionism. So at the age of 30, after trying to spend 10 years raising four children perfectly, (laughs) trying to be perfect at my job, trying to be a perfect wife, a perfect person, my body said, I'm out, right? Because every single time someone pushed a button that made me feel imperfect or not good enough, then I would go straight back into that same autonomic nervous system, sympathetic nervous system response, right? Into fight or flight. And so that's what happens is it's like you get wired with a button in your body that in adulthood, people then come along and they can push if you're not aware of it and go in and deconstruct it. That's how that works. And that that requires is in the hurt model that came from my research is on one side, you've got this this model that is non-examined, right? So it's an unexamined life and you'll have the inability to self-confront. So you're always blaming and shaming something outside of you. This is always my mother's fault. This is always, you know, I was sexually abused, therefore. That way of being in the world will just lead to illness. You know, it's automatic negative thoughts, rumination on past hurts. It sends you back into sympathetic nervous system response and you just keep going and it causes disease and a lack of sexual desire. Because if you're in fight or flight, you're a zebra that's being chased by a lion and you think you're about to get eaten all the time, that zebra knows it's not safe to stop and have sex, right? It's not safe to reproduce because you can barely keep yourself alive. 
So you're very wisely wired to not have reproductive hormones available and desire for sex when that's happening, as well as digestive stuff and all the rest that goes with that. On the other side of that model is the willingness to self-confront, to say, okay, everywhere I go, there I am. This keeps happening and there's a pattern present. I need to investigate this, right? And then you can start doing work that I have several different methodologies I use. And then if you can't get through them, then you actually have to do trauma healing work with like EMDR or brain spotting or, you know, rewiring your brain. I had to do all that. Mm -hmm. And eventually that will lead to this forgiveness process. That's actually more than just saying, I forgive some person like in a pew in church, you know, it's so much more. It's finding the similarity between the two of you and seeing that, oh, I have the same ego characteristics as everyone else on the planet. And, you know, whatever I feed the most to grows strongest. And so you get this ability to actually see yourself in your persecutor and say, okay, now I understand what the teaching is. You don't have to reconcile with them if they're not safe, but you can forgive them and you have to if you're going to get better. And from there can come gratitude and appreciation for life, which actually puts you into parasympathetic nervous system response, which is life supporting. So it's that ability to move into a different way of being in the world out of judgment, blame and shame. Mm, that was so articulate. And thank you for sharing again, your personal story. So we all can see these themes and patterns come to life. And, you know, as you know, I reflect and as we, you know, move through this, as we both see patients all the time, our bodies, I always think are these barometers, you know, there's, you know, our bodies naturally want to heal. And I think there's this natural movement towards compassion, forgiveness, gratitude, but, you know, life gets in the way, right? And so mm-hmm. if we can reframe our illness and our symptoms, as our bodies just really wanting us to heal on a deeper level, there's just this whole greater meaning that becomes evident. And having an autoimmune illness, um, if you don't have this perspective, it can be very disempowering, right? You went to the conventional medicine, they said it's just your genetics, and then you're reflecting that you can't trust your body. And there's all these you know, other emotions. It feels like a betrayal. Yeah. You know, and as I work with patients and groups of, you know, healing trauma, I always bring the body in as one of the perpetrators of trauma. If they have autoimmunity, just to examine if that person is in that relationship with their body, like, I can't trust you. You've betrayed me. You know, you've broken the contract that I think we have. You're not meeting my expectations. That all has to be healed. If your body's actually going to get better you get into this collaborative relationship. I always say if a body at war with its mind and spirit, there's no winner, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you can get in this collaborative relationship with it, then all of it's just data, has no emotion to it, has no meaning, it has no belief around it until you put it there, right? And you get on the scale and it says a number that you don't like, your scale's not shaming you. It's not going... <sighs> you know, you're so bad, right? It's actually just giving you a data point, you know, that you can then take and say, oh, that's information I need to use. Okay. And that's actually, if we can get into that space with our bodies, that it's just trying to communicate, it's not emotional and it's not shaming. Our minds are doing that, right? Based on early traumatic meanings we made up, then we can actually be able to get into a more collaborative relationship. Absolutely. And, 
you know, what you have also shared is this is from those who are maybe wanting to know more and know the research. I mean, the ACE study actually correlated if they um, had individuals who had a certain number of traumatic events, this actually was correlated to illness later in life. And so can you talk a little bit about maybe as somebody who's listening, if, you know, we actually have an EMDR therapist at our office who um, has people fill out the ACE score and kind of maybe make that a little bit more tangible, what that looks like. And if people wanted to go through that evaluation process, if they need that information. Yeah. So in my book, Solving the Autoimmune Puzzle, I put the ACEs score in there or the ACEs quiz. And I'm an EMDR and a brain spotting therapist too, because I was only sitting in like at a desk for medicine for about three months before I went, I have to know more about how to do therapy. Like I have to know how to do this. You know, I can't treat someone's GERD without actually addressing this anxiety that I see that's present and getting to the root cause of that, right? And knowing what these ACEs are. So yeah, the ACEs study, for those of you that don't know, was um, actually came out of a weight loss clinic that Kaiser Permanente had. And Kaiser was conducting this great weight loss program that was really successful, working really well. And yet, in spite of losing a lot of weight, so, you know, a large percentage of women were dropping out before they reached goal. And luckily, the director was curious enough to start calling people back in and asking them questions and found that a large number of them were sexually abused in childhood and started scratching his head and going, hmm, that's interesting. And so combined with the Centers for Disease Control, and they did this, this study called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, ACEs study, and they had over 17,000 participants in it. And they asked them a series of 10 questions looking at kinds of neglect and abuse. And they found that over two thirds of that 17,500 and some odd people had an ACE score of at least one and 80% of them had an ACE score of at least two. If you have an ACE score of six or more, it takes 20 years off your life. Now that's statistics, right? These are all statistical um, numbers that have been done through through studies, but that doesn't necessarily make it true. It means that if you stay on the trajectory you're on and you don't do the willingness to self-confront, that that can be your reality. The good news is, is all of it's reversible. You can heal every single bit of this and not make that true for you. You know, your genetics, just because you have a genetic propensity for something doesn't mean you need to actually express it, you know? And so that's the beauty of all this. In my book, I, I say, take the ACE quiz. And then at the end of it, I go, okay, so now you have this number. What do you do with it? Don't panic. This doesn't mean it's set in stone. You know, from here now, you get to do something about this, which is very empowering rather than disempowering, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I think this is why we want disinformation out there. You know, I think some people might have this sense or this knowing that, yes, there are these unresolved issues in their life, but maybe don't always know how to go about addressing, you know, acknowledging, confronting and healing from those. And, um, you know, I, I want to talk about some other things, but before we do that, I um, you mentioned a couple techniques that I would love to make sure that we really share with people if they're like sitting there. Okay. I know I've had adverse, you know, childhood experiences. I have a chronic illness or an autoimmune illness, you know, where do I go from here? I mean, obviously, as many people who can see you, I would love for them to see you, but, um, you know, this is a big issue. So how do people, how would you, what are some practical steps for people to start healing um, from this trauma? There are a couple, like, that's actually why I wrote Solving the Autoimmune Puzzle and, and put this in there is here are some worksheets that you can do and you can see, like, do I get stuck here? 
here's how to find the right kind of therapy and the right kind of therapist. Because oftentimes this is what I, I speak from stages. I'll say um, shopping for a therapist is like shopping for shoes. You know, you can't go to the first therapist you find. And then if they don't work for you, you say therapy doesn't work. If you go shoe shopping and you want a pair of green boots and you find some really cute ones, you try them on and then you walk around and you find they pinch a bit. You don't put your shoes back on the shelf and walk out barefoot and say, shoes don't work for me, you know, meant that pair didn't really work for you. (laughs) And so, Mm -hmm. you know, and maybe it's boots you didn't want, you wanted some sandals. And so there are different modalities and you have to find the one that works for you. EMDR is eye movement desensitization reprogramming. We've mentioned a couple of times, Francine Shapiro was the one that developed that that technique back in the 1970s, a lot of science behind it. A man that was teaching it, David Grand, was a psychologist who discovered that actually he could make it go a little quicker um, and it was a little easier on the client and that's called brain spotting. So I always call it EMDR 2.0. And so you can try that. Clinical hypnotherapy, there's some science behind that where actually this is a really interesting statistic. It takes 20 years of talk therapy to actually get you to the place that eight cognitive behavioral therapy, no, it's 20, and then eight clinical hypnotherapy sessions will do with with someone that's trauma-informed. So it's it's really interesting how you can go 20 years or 20 sessions or six to eight sessions, you know, and it, it just depends on how you want to do it. But talk therapy is usually not very effective as a trauma release. Um, you have to do more to rewire that brain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, you can keep telling your story in the same way and just keep cementing it in. Right. And you can do that with your girlfriends. So, yeah, yeah. And these therapies you mentioned access not only our conscious mind, but, you know, our these patterns that, you know, get stuck and also our our subconscious mind, which um, is a very powerful driver in, you know, health and healing in in our lives. So and now we're using this technology called Zoom right now. I use this with patients all over the world and I can do brain spotting and EMDR with them like this. You know, like it's amazing. You're not limited to Sometimes I hear people say, well, I live in a really rural area. We don't have anybody that does that. You're not limited now to going into a geographical office, which is really great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's wonderful. And that, of course, creates more access to people. So right. that's that's right. great. So Keisha, you obviously were drawn to Ayurveda and you've studied Ayurvedic medicine. And maybe if this is a new term for some of our audience, um, I would love for you to just share what is Ayurveda and really it ties in, you've already mentioned this concept that we're more than our physical body. And so if you could just give us a little intro to that. Sure. It's the sister science of yoga. It's like the medical arm of yoga. So it's about 10,000 years old, comes out of India. It's in a series of texts called the Vedas, which yoga comes from, Ayurvedic medicine comes from, Jyotish, which is Eastern astrology, comes from that, and Vastu, which is where feng shui came from. So it actually addresses like your environment, you know, the stars and cosmos and planets when you were born, your the medical part of this and also yoga. So it's just really lovely. So it's the sister sciences that work together for a human in their lifespan. And one of the things that Ayurveda says is that not only are we not all the same person, but here's how you can tell like what you are, right? And that you're always going to be shifting in response to your environment, to what you're thinking, to what you're eating, how you're sleeping. 
And so maintaining balance in the face of all of that is important. And here are the tools for it. So I just loved it because it was kind of like the the user's manual that we all wish our children were born with. You know, <laughs> it's like, how do I operate this? You know, mm. and so it's like our own owner's manual, you know, about how to kind of tie in and, and figure out certain things about ourselves. And one of the things that they talk about are doshas and doshas would be like your unique composition. And the biggest piece around it that I just love is that they talk about us being a microcosm of the macrocosm of the universe. So we are your, your individual cells expanded. And then, you know, the cosmos are us expanded. And so I always say, so then that means that everything that makes up the earth is inside of us. The elemental table is within us. So if you think about that, then that means we're just like dirt. And so I use that as the way to figure, you know, like kind of to describe the doshas. So Vada, these are all Sanskrit words, is more air and space. And so the person is a lighter body type, um, either usually pretty thin unless they're burned out, um, short or tall, and they'll have thinner hair, thinner lips, thinner bones, and they're highly creative and they get airy and spacey. So they can be more prone to dizziness and constipation and moving pain in their bodies and osteoporosis when they're older, Um, constipation, they're drier, and also things like scattered mind, brain fog, ADD. So that would be a vada. A pitta person is more fire and water. And so like if you think about vada being more air and space, the dirt they would represent would be sand. There's more air and space between grains of sand if you do this, right? And if wind or air comes up in the desert and blows it, then everything gets chaotic. And so a vada person can get kind of chaotic in that environment. Pitta would be more like the rainforest, fire. And so everything, like if a bird flies over a rainforest and drops a seed, you don't have to cultivate it. It just sprouts, right? And so Pitta people will get ideas and then they have enough fire to follow through and actually make them happen. So they're usually very highly intelligent, um, but then they run toward inflammation, more fiery. So anything red is Pitta is how I usually say it. Um, And then they can have a sh- you know sharp acidity in their bodies which means a sharp tongue a sharp mind a sharp intellect and judgment right <laughs> and so that's that's pitta and then and they have a sharp metabolism which in before menopause for a woman it would be like don't get between a pitta and the dinner table right they don't they get hangry that's a pitta person mm-hmm. <laughs> and then kapha is more water and earth which would be like clay And, you know, if you put a stick in clay, it will just stay there. Or if you put it in sand, it'll wobble and fall over. So things get stuck in a kapha body. They usually have more tissue, more bone structure, thicker lips, thicker hair, oilier skin, thicker skin. And they're loyal and they're loving and they're kind of like the elephant. When they learn something, it takes longer to learn it, but then they remember it forever. And they also hold on to things. So that could be holding on to hurt. It can be holding on hoarding, you know, like wanting more time or more love or more friends or more food. Um, And they hold on to their weight and they run towards like water issues, edema, boils, things like that. And uh, diabetes, sugar is actually fairly toxic, even though kapha usually likes sugar. 
So there's a way inside the Ayurvedic paradigm for helping people to mitigate whatever imbalances happen to each one of them. And it's just lovely. You know, it's a lovely way of thinking about it. And then we have like a Vata, Pitta, Kapha stage of life that we go through. And then this idea that there are five layers to us, you know, there's the physical structure that has your DNA and it has all your organs and your systems And then your chakra system, the electrical system, connects you to the next body, which is your energy body, which we call chi in Chinese medicine or prana in yoga or ki in Japan. And your electromagnetic energy field in in our paradigm. And then you move into emotional, mental, and then like higher consciousness, higher wisdom, intuition. And then there's spirit body, which is called the Anandamaya Kosha. And it's the portal into all not like the collective unconsciousness and it's what carl jung called right the collective unconsciousness if we're toxic in any of those layers we don't get to that place the way we would want to you know that's the place where if you're in the shower and you're chewing on a problem and all of a sudden epiphany a download happens you know or you're out hiking and and all of a sudden you get that epiphany that's your access to that part and that's your it's called your bliss sheet that's where your joy is so we always want to be there but we get toxic in these other places and so it's you know it's having to detox all of you not just your liver right (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah no that's a beautiful explanation and you know it's a great i mean how ten thousand years old right this these are common themes that you know stand the test of time and how um you know we all respond to our environment and they all are you know continue to be relevant and you know my understanding too as people are listening um to this and thinking of themselves you can be a combination right you don't have to be just one don't you're never that. just one. You're yeah. actually a combination and your own. It's just like our fingerprints are all different. You're your own snowflake, right? So mm-hmm. your combination is yours. And so that's and how it changes and how they're actually pulse diagnosis is the most accurate way of doing this. And in your pulse, there's seven different layers. So it, it goes much deeper than what I said. And so we're all very different with our combination and we're always like what our bodies are asking us to do is maintain that balance we were at birth. And so it's like knowing what that is and what to do to keep that going. And it will never stay stable all the time. It's always like this. So Mm -hmm. I think that's another interesting thing that our culture, I think in functional medicine too, where there's like this expectation. I've been working with a lot of people to try and help them understand that autoimmunity is and cancer, a call to start to uh, embrace and embody reality, which is that we are going to die. You know, there's this beautiful Buddhist principle that says everything you love, you will lose. Everything that lives dies. And that's just like, why don't we teach our children this? We have these fairy tales of, you know, the handsome prince and the castle in the sky. (laughs) We, We have these expectations that the body won't deteriorate. And it has to, you know, unless you're in a traumatic car accident or plane crash, you you know, in order for your spirit to get ready to separate you, your body, as you age, it will deteriorate. And so a lot of the work I have been doing recently is helping people really understand that functional medicine is not a magic wand that you never age, you know, that you don't break down. You know, we we're what we're doing is we're helping you maintain as much as you can 
But this whole idea that you could have anti-aging is just crap. You know, like it's just not true. You are aging and your cells are dying every single day. It's called apoptosis and then regenerating, you know? And so it's just this like moving into the rhythm of life instead of fighting it. I think a lot of times disease is a call to bring you into that. Like, oh, what is it you're trying to teach me here? You know? So anyway. Yeah, no, I think that's such a powerful message. And there is this, especially in American culture, this, you know, denial of death and, you know, those things that are, you know, uncomfortable, right, to talk about. And we probably don't do adequate preparation, you know, during our lifetime to, you know, really to prepare for that, right, and to make sure that we are um, in touch with that inevitability and how do we, how do we choose to live our life, you know, in light of, you know, this process. And I, I think probably as you often see when people are especially are what I believe when they're struck with an illness or chronic illness, probably before their, their before their body should be at the state, state of decline. Right. And this takes them, you know, out of their life and, you know, out of their, engagement of life. And um, I find that when they can connect with their purpose and their sense of being and really what they want to bring and be on this planet before, you know, we all die, there's just this renewed, I I don't know, I I believe it's kind of like an anchor to help them get well too, just to envision this other vision of their life. Motivation, right? Yeah. I I always call this, like in my book, I coined this term misery to motivation ratio, that the more miserable we are, the more motivated we are to make the changes. (laughs) But the idea that the body is breaking down before it should is also incorrect. You know, like we have this idea that like children shouldn't die and that's not true. You know, mm-hmm. that, that we all have, we, we are all supposed to move into our 90s and have an expiration date that is unified. It's not true. You know, mm-hmm. there are so many different ways of thinking about this, but, but the fact that a child, you know, a child has died before their time is not necessarily accurate. And, and that made me wonder, I was, I was giving a talk from a stage and I asked the audience, like, where did we get that? It, it really messes us up, you know? And it, it was this really interesting question I was asking in the moment of this talk of where did we get that, right? That a parent shouldn't have to bury their child. Yes, it's the most horrific thing that we could ever think of and so horrible. But the idea that somehow that's not supposed to happen, that's the part that I think You know, in my book, I always say um, suffering comes from unmet expectations. And if we have an unmet expectation that we all go into our 80s and 90s fully cognitive with bodies that work until the time that we die in our sleep, no wonder we're so upset all the time and feel betrayed. You know, that expectation isn't based on any relevant factual, like, where'd we get it? Mm -hmm. Isn't that interesting to contemplate mm-hmm. it yeah. messes us up mm-hmm. as a culture mm-hmm. and so I kind of think like it traumatizes us on a cultural level that expectation and so it's really embracing and embodying you know an illness as this wake-up call to that fact you know like oh yeah I don't I'm not guaranteed a lifespan of 85 plus years I'm not you know, or dying in my bed without knowing it. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. also statistically very tiny part of our population. Mm-hmm. So 
I think that that's another, you know, kind of interesting benefit of illness is to wake us up to start thinking deeper thoughts, you know, Mm -hmm. rather than how much money I'm making or what my schedule is and, you know, kind of living on that surface space, really asking the deeper questions of what humans have to ask. So otherwise we have existential angst. Anyway, I got way off, but no, no, I think these are, you know, absolutely. And I, I mean, I think these are really um, important and profound topics and absolutely appropriate for the space that we're creating. You know, I, I feel obviously you're, you're seeing this through your work, right. With patients and, you know, you're not just, we were laughing when we started, we're not just giving people liberty talks or, you know, um, electrolytes or chlorella. There's this whole other aspect to healing. And I know that you're really multifaceted in how you approach each patient case. And that's where, you know, that's the language we're trying to create here. You know, that we're just, we're more than our physical body. And then the more that we integrate these concepts, the more healing potential happens and what healing looks like is probably a whole other conversation um, as you're going through these thoughts with us. I mean, healing isn't always, you know, everything gets tied and wrapped in a bow. You know, there's this whole other. Rarely. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know? Again, changing an expectation to more in alignment with reality. The more we can do that, the happier we are. <laughs> mm-hmm. I have no doubt. I have no yeah. doubt. Well, Keisha, I know that we could probably chat all day about life and all of these topics. Um, is there anything else that you want to, that's on your mind or that you want to share as we, you know, wrap our conversation up, anything around your work or Ayurvedic work or, you know, just your experience with patients um, and treating this, um, this other aspect um, of our health? I usually will answer that question when people say, is there one last pearl of wisdom? I'll tell people to watch their language, you know, and say, I'm not talking about jam and hell. I'm actually talking about, you know, what are your thoughts? We recycle 94% of them every day, day in and day out. And when you allow yourself to get really quiet and contemplative, it's sort of like the ocean becoming clearer as the sand settles. Then the 6% of new thought that you actually have every day has a chance of being seen. And sometimes in there, there might be a thought that is one to hold on to. And sometimes a new thought may not be worth anything, but you get an opportunity to actually take a look at your patterns. And, you know, are there a lot of, are you all over yourself? Is there a lot of can't, won't, you know, not, not good enough, not whatever, you know, how, how is that working? Do 24 hour examination of your thoughts. But then as we were talking, I thought, Another one that's really good is, um, and this is in solving the autoimmune puzzle, is a lot of times with my trauma patients, I'll have them write out a list because we were talking about unmet expectations of all the expectations they have of God, of life, of their body, of their spouse, their children, their parents, their work, you know, the government, um, how the food should react with them, you know, like all of these things write out all those expectations and in your journal and then look at the ones that actually have some semblance of realistic (laughs) um, ability to them. Like, can they come true? And if they can't, can you cross them off? Can you reshape them? Can you reframe it? Uh, Ones that like, I have an expectation in my marriage that, that it's not an open marriage and that we don't have infidelity and that's not one I'm going to change. And so my husband knows that and he has the same one of me. And so that's sort of a line drawn in the sand of an expectation that's not going to change. You know, that'll be different for everybody. So it's like looking at those. What are the 
the ones that are not changing, right? And that you want to hold on to and then have those be very few if possible. And the others allow a little bit more softness and fluidity to them because with autoimmune disease in particular, Ayurveda says it's a crystallization of what's going on in your mind. So I always say a rigid mind means a rigid body. So the more fluidity, the more flexibility, the more softness that you can bring to these mental constructs that you've built since childhood, the the more freedom you'll have actually in, in your physical self. Mm-hmm. And that's beautiful. And I, you know, I always like to say health is resilience. How can we create resilience and flexibility right. in our life? And I ultimately, I think, you know, that's what we're all, you know, aiming for this sense of freedom, right. And exactly. what that looks like for everyone is different, but no, this has been just such a lovely and heartfelt conversation. And I just, um, you know, I really appreciate all the work you're doing. I know, you know, when you wear all of these hats and treat people on this deeper level, it's work, you know, it's really rewarding, but it's, you're in there in the trenches with people. And um, I know you probably have all sorts of amazing practices to keep you um, going through that, but I, I just actually, it's not it's because this is how I teach my students it's yeah. not me doing it I yeah. just operate as a channel yeah people come in and I get intuition and, and it's not me like this is yeah. mine I don't heal anyone yeah. you know and yeah. then that makes it so it's not my ego doing the work so I'm not exhausted mm-hmm. at all it's it's regenerating mm-hmm. right yeah mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a great, no, I, I appreciate you reframing that because yeah. yeah, no, that's, that's the way it's sustainable for you. Right. And, exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, Keisha, how can people find out more about you and your work? And if you're seeing patients, um, still, if you're taking new patients, how can people work with you? Um, drkeisha.com, D-R-K-E-E-S-H-A.com is uh, my website and there's an, you can apply to become a patient there or there are online programs that are available that are like the UN Broken program is do-it-yourself trauma healing and it has those hard stops in it where you can go, if you can't get through this, then this is where you need to go borrow a brain is what I call therapy, go borrow a brain that can help you see the patterns and restructure. Well, thank you. We'll have all of that information, you know, with this talk. And we're so grateful for the work you do and sharing your time with us today. So thank you. Thank you. And I appreciate the platform you've created. It's amazing. Mm -hmm.